0: All right. Well, hey, if you have a Bible, go ahead and find uh, the book of Acts. It will be in Acts 17 this morning. Acts 17. We are continuing this morning our survey of Paul's uh, second missionary journey. And last week, uh, we saw that uh, the gospel is for all, uh, that there is one gospel for all people. This week, we're kind of shifting that Uh, theme a little bit, but we're staying in the same ballpark, the title of the message, All Things to All People. And you just heard from 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul saying as much that when he went to different people, he spoke in different ways, not changing the message, but meeting people where they are. This morning, Luke has for us in the Acts 17, three major locations that we'll study today. And all of them are different, much like the diverse places and people we learned about last week. We listened again to Ethan reading 1 Corinthians chapter 9, where Paul explains to the Corinthians that he, comes, uh, he becomes all things to all people that by all means he might save some. Now, as Christians, we are not chameleons, all right? So you know how a chameleon works or an octopus, maybe? Uh, they completely change in the context of their surroundings. So if they go on to something that's blue, they turn blue. If they go on something that turns, that's brown, they turn brown. We are not chameleons. We don't take on the color and texture of just anything that our culture throws at us, but we are called as believers to wisely engage with those around us where they are. So as we'll see in our text this morning, Paul's mission is gonna remain the same, but his methods will sometimes shift to meet people where they are. We'll see that more and more. So let's read and jump in. We have a whole chapter to cover, starting in verse one. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar saying that there is another king, Jesus. The people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. All right, let's pray before we go any further. Lord God, we love you. We're grateful for your grace. We thank you, God, for this morning and our time together. We pray, Lord, that you would uh, help this time to be profitable as we think and consider the truth of your word. Lord, most of all, as we consider the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ and how he has uh, revealed himself to us by the power of the Holy Spirit and through the word of God. Lord, we pray that we might be changed and transformed to be more and more like him today. Uh, He is the one who came proclaiming the good news of the kingdom may we also be proclaimers of that same gospel. Help us, Lord, as we think about these things together this morning, help me to teach with clarity and authority. In Christ's name we pray, amen. All right, hey, if you're in those extra seats as a student and you have a place to go, there's, tables, uh, there's a table over here with chairs, different, different things like that. If you would just at this point, go ahead and stand and find another place to sit. That way when folks who come in who are even later uh, come in, they have a place to go. You're not bothering anybody, just go find another place, it's great. All right, so if you're taking notes this morning, uh, our first location is Thessalonica. So if you're taking notes, number one, witnessing in Thessalonica. Now, what is Thessalonica? It's a city of 200,000 people, which back then was a major, major city. It was a major hub in the Roman Empire. And as we see Paul going, as he does from place to place, Luke tells us that he has a custom. He has a method. He has a kind of tradition or a shorthand that he does when he goes to proclaim the gospel. What was Paul's custom? He would go to a city. He would find the Jews there or the synagogue that was there. And then he would reason with them from the scriptures. He would show them according to God's word, who the Messiah was, that it really was Jesus Christ that he really did have to die on the cross, that he really did have to rise from the dead, and that you really should put your faith in him. Paul was convinced that the gospel of Jesus was found in the Bible because the Bible was given to reveal God in Christ to us. So he, he goes there. He goes to the synagogue as was his custom and reasons with them from the scriptures. Now, what were the major points of contention? What, what was he having to teach? What was was new or novel or difficult for them to understand? Well, that Jesus was the Christ, that the Christ had to suffer. Remember, the Jews in those days, when they thought of the Messiah, when they thought of the Christ or the son of David, they thought of a conquering king. They thought of someone who would come and destroy all of their enemies and restore God's kingdom to Israel uh, so that the world might uh, bow in reverence at his power and worship him through those means, it would have been so foreign to them to consider that the Christ, the son of David, the son of God, would die. That the way to his victory was actually through death. That would have been hard to understand. More than that, that he would rise from the dead. While Jews believed in a resurrection, they, it would have been hard for them to fathom that the Christ would die and rise from dead. The dead. If you continue to read the scriptures, both Old and New Testament, you will hear the language of Jesus being, or the Messiah being, a stone. In some senses, he will be one kind of stone or the other. He will either be the cornerstone of our faith, the most important, vital aspect of what we believe, or he will be a stumbling stone that we will trip over to our destruction. In a real sense, the only two ways we might know Christ. We will know him as a stone one way or the other. Now, the good news that comes from this is that some believed. Uh, you see through the preaching of the gospel uh, in Thessalonica, both Jews and Greeks, both men and women come to faith. And it's interesting to note, if you go and read the book of Acts, Luke makes a point multiple times to include women in the numbering of the people of God who are coming to Christ. That would have been uncommon in the writings of the first century. And I think it's just a reminder, just as a little side note, that the gospel and Christianity, historically, one of the ways that it stuck out is in the way that it elevated and empowered women and gave them the rightful value as equal to men. You see that in Luke's numbering schemes as well, but not all believed. Like every other place Paul has gone, you had people who believed and you had people who were angry, who were jealous, who were enraged. The Jews in Thessalonica took wicked men, Luke says, and they formed a mob trying to destroy the ones who were bringing the truth to their city. And so Jason, you read about here in uh, the first couple of verses, verse six, they dragged Jason, a local believer, out in public because he gets caught in the crossfire. Apparently, Jason was the one who was housing Paul and Silas and his crew. And so he suffered for the sake of the name that Paul and Silas had preached. I don't know if you have felt this way before, but that's true of us. You and I are not the ones who are uh, preaching the main message of this local church. That would be Brian Payne. And for decades before him, it was Al Jackson. And in our community, in our city, there is a, well, there's there's an understanding about our church, what kind of church we are, what kind of things we believe, what kind of practices we do, what kind of commitments we keep. Some of that doesn't necessarily agree with the movement of our culture. So here's what that means. While you don't preach from the pulpit on Sunday mornings, Brian does, there is a cost you pay for being a faithful member of this church. In our town, in our community, in your schools, it costs something to be numbered among this body of believers. And my encouragement to you is to see Jason as thinking it worthy to be counted among those who might suffer, who might pay a cost, who might even be persecuted for standing with the truth, for standing with what's right, for standing with the truth of God's word. Now the charge the mob brought against Paul and Silas and the others was serious. They said that they're acting against the decrees of Caesar saying that there is another king. That is a pretty high crime to go into the Roman Empire and say, hey, Caesar isn't the king. There's another king. Some might even consider that to be treasonous talk, to speak of another ruler or another king over this empire. Now, it is not for the people of God to get overly offensive. And I think we've all seen enough to know that. I think we've all seen enough to know that Christians can often lack tact on how they approach others or how they uh, carry themselves in the world or how they speak on social media. Like all of us have seen ways in which believers who we know and love and trust have mishandled that stewardship. Even in our own lives, we might say, man, I've been guilty of being overly harsh or overly offensive or unkind. But the fact that Jesus is the king of kings will always stand as a threat to rulers in our world. In other words, students, the gospel is offensive. If you try to make the gospel not offensive, you will inevitably take something fundamental out of the gospel. So don't believe that in order to be a faithful witness, I cannot be offensive at all. When you tell someone, hey, ultimately at the end of the day, you're trying to be the king of your own universe, but there's another king named Jesus who's sovereign over your life and actually is owed everything that you have because he's given it to you by grace and he offers you life, but you actually have to surrender yourself and submit to his lordship. There's not an unoffensive way to say that. When you you start to to attack the idols of the hearts of people, they are going to be offended. Now we can do that in a way that's inappropriately and unnecessarily offensive, but the gospel is offensive. Now, Paul and Silas were able to escape the mob and head to Berea. So that'll be the next place we look. Let's pick up in verse 10. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. Stop there. All right, so we've been witnessing in Thessalonica, and now we're moving to Berea. So in the middle of the night, Paul and Silas begin a roughly 50-mile journey to get to Berea, a city to the southwest on the foothills of the Olympian mountains. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, you might think that that's just Greek mythology, but there are really Olympian or Olympic mountains. Mount Olympus really is a place. Uh, and here, the Jews also heard Paul and Silas preach the gospel, just as was Paul's custom in cities before that. But here, Luke tells us, there were three things among these uh, Berean Jews that I think is worthy of our study, worthy of our note, all right? There was an eager reception, a close examination, and then a great harvest, all right? So we'll talk about those three things in turn. There's something really helpful for us as believers who want to grow to see as an example in these Berean Jews. As we listen to preaching and teaching, us as believers We should be eager to receive the word. It says here that the Berean Jews were eager to receive the word that Paul was teaching. God's word, we believe, is a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. It's more sweet to us than honey from the comb. It's more valuable to us than gold. We want God's word because it's his revelation of himself to us. We will find truth about God in Christ in no other place like we will find it in scripture. It's not to say that you won't find anything about God in the world or anything about God in your relationships or anything about God in creation itself, but you will find him truly and really and sweetly and gloriously in his word. But my preaching and my teaching or Brian's preaching and teaching, or anyone else's, is not superior to the Bible itself. My preaching and teaching is not to keep you from reading God's word in the same way that Paul's proclaiming of the gospel was not meant to keep the Bereans from searching the scriptures. No. We want that eager reception of the word to be connected to that diligent examination of what the Bible says to see what's true. So when you hear preaching and teaching from me or from Brian or from anybody else, does it accord with the word of God? Does it line up with what scripture teaches? Well, if it does, believe it, apply it, be molded by it, meditate on it, let it shape your heart and your mind. Is it out of sync? with God's word, then leave it in this room and don't take it with you. Now, I hope and pray that the pastors of Lakeview have both modeled and earned your trust as faithful teachers of God's word. So what I'm not saying is, is that you and I should live our whole lives completely skeptical of anybody who ever teaches about the Bible. Of Like, mm, I just don't know that that's true. No, like, we, we, should, we should work from a position of trust, not a position of suspicion. But I am fallible, students. I, I'm not perfect. There might be times where I will say the wrong thing or teach the wrong thing. I'll give you a, a very lighthearted example. This was a couple of years ago. Anthony Brown will remember this. Um, I taught one time. Uh, this was probably, gosh, five years ago or so. Uh, you know what I'm talking about, too. On the incarnation, And how wonderful it is that the son of God took on flesh and came in human form. And I talked about this immaculate conception that this miracle happens with Mary giving birth to the son of God. And like the next day or like that afternoon, Anthony so lovingly, so kindly was like, hey man, like everything you said was true, but the immaculate conception is not about Jesus like historically that doctrine, it's about Mary. Uh, it's, a, it's a Roman Catholic doctrine that we don't believe uh, that, me, that talks about how Mary was born uh, without sin, that she was born in a miraculous way. And I'm like, mm, I've been to seminary, Anthony. I think I know what I'm talking about. And sure enough, like the next day, I looked up, looked up Immaculate Conception and was totally wrong, like totally wrong. <laughs> so I went back to Anthony. I was like, man, you are right. Thank you for being the ref, like call the fouls. As you see them, uh, and I think maybe even the next Sunday, I might have said something in Sunday school of just like, hey, I told you something last week. Just delete that little thing. We believe that Jesus was born miraculously, but that's not what we call it, right? I'm going to get things wrong. Every pastor and preacher and teacher is going to get things wrong. But like the Bereans, we want to be eager to receive the word that's been preached and teached, but we also want to be eager to diligently examine the scriptures and see what's right. And that leads to a bountiful harvest. It leads to the gift of faith being given. Now, as people who were not yet believers, these Berean Jews, it led to their conversion. It led to them putting their faith in Jesus as the Messiah for the first time, going from death to life, from darkness to light, from slavery to freedom. For us as Christians, it increases our faith. It sanctifies us in the truth. It makes us more and more like Jesus. That's the kind of life we should want to live. And that's the kind of life that Paul and Silas were living with these Berean believers for a time. Eventually, however, the Jews of Thessalonica caught up with them and ran them out of the city. Look at verse 13. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, They came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens. And after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Here's just something of note. There are going to be people who are divisive. There are going to be people who pursue conflict. Now, not all conflict is bad. You and I, if we come to a disagreement, we need to enter into some conflict to figure out who's right, what's right, collaborate to kind of get to the same answer. A conflict is not always a bad thing. But what you're seeing here is these men who were led by jealousy and a commitment to believing things that were not true leads them to pursue and agitate and create needless conflict. Let that be a warning to you. If conflict seems to just follow you all the time, consider asking the question, am I contributing to the stirring up of that conflict? Am I the one who's introducing factiousness and division? Or am I pursuing peace? You see this clear example. And the discernment that Paul and Silas have that sometimes they stand their ground. Sometimes they proclaim the gospel with boldness. Sometimes they leave the city. Sometimes the wisest thing to do for Paul and Silas's sake is to walk away. So much so that Paul goes to Athens, 250 miles away from Berea, gets on a boat and sails across the sea to get away from these people. Now, ultimately he's led by the Spirit He's on his missionary journey. But there's a part of this of saying, hey, this conflict, not a benefit, not profitable. So let's keep reading. We've, uh, we've gone from Thessalonica to Berea, and now we're moving to Athens. Look at verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Except telling or hearing something new. All right, so Paul, third location, witnessing in Athens. Paul witnessed to the people of Thessalonica and Berea. And what we see for the most part there is he's going to Jews who have background knowledge of Yahweh, the God of Israel, who have background knowledge of the history of Israel, the history of the Old Testament. The the gospel story that's presented there in types and shadows that he gets to bring light to. But now he goes to Athens. And Athens is a different place. It is the metropolis of Greece, it's an intellectual and economic powerhouse. And when he goes there, his spirit is provoked by what he saw. And what he saw was not intellectual firepower. It wasn't economic prowess and growth. He saw idols everywhere. Now, a quick definition of an idol is anything we put in the place of God, right? So anything can be an idol. We can put anything on the throne that only God is rightful to sit on. But here's a longer definition. Idolatry is the attempt either to localize God confining him within limits which we impose, whereas he is the creator of the universe, or to domesticate God, making him dependent on us, taming him, whereas he is the sustainer of human life, or to alienate God, blaming him for his distance and his silence, whereas he is the ruler of nations and not far from any of us, or to dethrone God, demoting him to some image of our own contrivance or craft, Whereas he is our father from whom we derive our being. In brief, all idolatry reverses the respective positions of God and us. So that instead of our humbly acknowledging that God has created and rules us, we presume to imagine that we can create and rule God. And students, we can make idols out of anything. As Christians, We must recognize that idolatry is near to all of us. We must be vigilant in putting our idols to death. So like before, Paul went to the synagogue. He reasoned with the Jews there. But it also says he went to the marketplace and spoke with the people who were there as well. And while he was there, some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, one all about pleasure and maximizing uh, pleasure in this life. One, all about being content with the things that, that uh, the universe has given you and having real no real emotional, passionate reaction to things. These Epicurean and Stoic philosophers conversed with him and invited him to come speak. thought he was talking about some new divinity from another place. And while it may have been Jesus they had in mind, it's possible that the word resurrection... Um, would have been heard by the Greeks as a divine name. So in Greek, uh, words are gendered. They're either male or female. They're masculine or feminine. And the word for resurrection is this feminine noun. And it may have been that these philosophers heard resurrection as a goddess. They're like, hey, you're bringing these foreign divinities in here. We want to know what you're talking about. Now, before Paul reasoned from the scriptures to those who had a working knowledge, but that is not his audience here at the Areopagus. He's talking to people who have philosophical knowledge, questions about life and the universe. He's, but they have no knowledge of Israel. They have no knowledge of the God of heaven. So, so let's read his speech and learn together some things from how he speaks. All right, verse 22. by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. So what's going on in this speech? What's going on in Paul's sermon at the Areopagus to these Greek philosophers, thinkers, those who have no knowledge of the God of Israel? Well, he begins with common ground. He met the people right where they are at. And the good news for me and you, the good news for anyone who hears the gospel is that this is exactly what Jesus does. Jesus does this for each one of us. He did this for each one of us. Jesus is able to meet us right where we are at. We don't come to him and have to clean ourselves up or understand things or be able to pass a test. We just come to him as we are. He meets us where we are. And Paul's doing exactly that. He tells them that there's a kind of knowledge that will not be stumbled upon or reasoned out. He says, look, you guys are very religious. You've thought of a lot of things but you have an idol over here that says to an unknown God. And so there's this recognition that there are some things we don't know. There are some things we won't know unless someone tells us. And Paul says, I'm here to tell you who that unknown God is. Students for us and for our peers as well. There's a kind of knowledge that will not be stumbled upon, will not be reasoned out. It has to be revealed. So when we proclaim the gospel, we are bringing that revealed knowledge to bear on those who will not know it any other way. He says that the God who made all things is the only God, and he is completely independent. He doesn't live in temples made by man. He's not served by human hands. The fancy theological word for this is aseity, A-S-E-I-T-Y, aseity, All that means is, is that God is self-existent. He didn't need anything to be God. He is self-sufficient. He doesn't need anything now to continue being God. And he is self-satisfied. There is nothing out there that God goes, man, I just wish I had some more of that and then I'd be happier or more satisfied or more content. No, he is self satisfied. He is independent of all creation. He has no needs. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. And this creator God, Paul says, is the author and sustainer of life, all life, your life, my life. From one man, he made all men and he is sovereign over history and sovereign over life. And he has put it in the heart of human beings to seek him. Look at verse 27 again. Why does he say all these things? Why did God do all these things? Why did he create humanity? Verse 27, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. He then quotes Epimenides and Erratus. You see in your Bible, it's probably bracketed out like poetic lines. Paul is quoting Greek poetry and Greek philosophy. Now, what does that mean? it means that Paul has studied this. It means that Paul already knows this. For him to be able to just off the top of his head, quote some Greek poetry. He is, in other words, taking from all aspects of culture, sifting it through the scriptures like the Bereans have done with his word and is able to use that which expresses the truth even if it comes from a different source. You think about this in the story of the Exodus, when Israel is about to leave Egypt after the 10th plague has happened. And what we sometimes forget to remember is that as they're walking out, they plunder the Egyptians. They ask for gold and silver and precious stones and uh, jewelry. And the Egyptians give them everything they want. And so as they're walking out of Egypt, they are taking with them the riches of Egypt. Now, Augustine, early church father, uses that language to talk about philosophy and culture. And he says, listen, because of God's grace on the world to reveal truth to the world, let us plunder the Egyptians again. So if you can find true things in that uh, sphere of thought, bring it with you subordinate it to the to the Bible, but bring it with you. Let's plunder the Egyptians, Augustine says. Pastor Brian says it like this. Egyptian gold is still gold, <laughs> right? This is a better way to say it, right? Egyptian gold is still gold. That's what Paul is doing here. He's showing them through their own writings and words the truth. Now, God was not imagined like all other idols, Paul says. He's, he's not created by the imagination of mankind. He's the real and now the time of ignorance is over. And, And students, I need you to see what Paul says here. In verse 30, he says the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he not invites, not welcomes, not suggests. He commands everyone to repent. Coming to Christ is an invitation, but it is also a summons from a king. It's a command. The time of ignorance is over. God commands us to repent. Why? Because Jesus, the one who was raised from the dead, is coming again to judge the world in righteousness. These men on the Areopagus sit around and talk about new thoughts and new ideas all day, every day. And Paul is saying, there's going to be an expiration date to this kind of living because judgment is coming. There is a real judgment. And so there is a real danger. And therefore turning to Christ is the real solution. Now, like every other place, Paul was not in control of the response. He, he preaches this word and some mock him, especially when he gets to the resurrection. They rejected his message. Others were intrigued, but in the same way, any new teaching intrigued them. Oh, well, I want to hear about more of that later. Come back to the hill. Come back to the Areopagus. Come tell us more about this, this resurrection and this Jesus. We're interested. But others believed. They joined him in following Christ. So students, when we share the gospel, success is not measured by results. But you need to be encouraged by that and remember that when you go to share the gospel with other people, success is not measured by results. How many people came to faith? And that's not how we measure success because you don't have control over those results. Success is measured by faithfulness. Did you follow the leadership of the Spirit? Did you use wisdom in discerning when and where to share the gospel? Now, we need wisdom and discernment to do that. We can grow in appropriately sharing the gospel and effectively sharing the gospel. We can practice and grow in knowledge to communicate in a way that our neighbors can understand. So in a very real sense, students evangelism is a skill like any other that we all start off not really great at but we can grow in. And we remember that the Lord is at work. We can trust him. We began this message this morning saying that uh, we want to be all things to all people. And as you've seen how Paul acts and speaks in ways that are distinct when he's with the Jews in the synagogue or with the Greeks on Mars Hill, the Areopagus, you and I must be thinking or could be thinking about our own contexts, our own network of acquaintances and friends, and where they are, and how we might speak to them and share with them in effective ways so they might actually hear the gospel and believe. We're not changing the gospel, we're not changing the message, but we are trying to contextualize. So, so think about it like this we're not trying to um, transform the gospel into something palatable for people in our culture to hear and understand. Then it would be no gospel at all. But we're, not, we're also not trying to just merely transport the gospel from one context to another because things are going to get lost in that transportation process. Things are going to be heard by a person that is not going to actually be what we mean. So as faithful Christians, looking at Paul... Our challenge is to translate. We want to be translators of the gospel, retaining the meaning and content of the message in a way that our neighbors can hear and understand and believe. That sounds daunting, but remember, the Lord is at work. This is a great privilege and one that we've all been called to.